I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and early modern trans studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Elise. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm really excited to talk about today's topic. Me too. I'm so excited. Yeah. Today we are talking about pastoral comedies and satire. And I'm very excited about this because when I was working on Midsummer this past summer, I was in a conversation. I was doing some research on that first scene with Theseus and Hippolyta, and there was a footnote in the Arden that was like, this is some satire 
And I went down this deep dive and I was like, I think, I think this entire play might be satirizing something. And like, this could Mm. be a satire of the pastoral genre itself. So, so we've gone with this and you totally were like, yeah, okay, we'll look into that, Elise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm on board. Yeah. I was like, what if this is like taking what the pastoral poems that it's inspired by did and then going, what happens when like they have to return home or what happens after you find contentment in the woods? I think, though, we have found that, yes, it could be that, but it's also like so many of other Shakespeare plays, it's also true political satire of the time that it was written in, right? Absolutely. When people say Shakespeare is so timeless, I'm like, "Mm, he's actually one of the most timely playwrights. He's, if you look at like art in Shakespeare, footnotes are full of, Mm -hmm. hey, this is a reference to this one person, to this one event, to this one thing. And it's like, oh, right. Yeah, the more that I understand the history surrounding the play as it, that it was the context it was written in, the more I'm like, ooh, that's actually what it applies to today. Mm. Like it almost allows it to be like timely and timeless. Correct. For me, it helps reinforce that it's not just timeless on an emotional level, but that mm-hmm. there are timeless battles, you know, political situations that we have to rehash over and over and over again and like we say often sometimes things don't change that much not much has changed not much has changed which is part of the timelessness but doing the show in the future it allows it to feel so much more timely for the moment that we're doing it in when there's parallels between what Shakespeare and the people around him were going through there are parallels to what we're dealing with today yeah thank you for clarifying that because I certainly don't mean to make it exclusively timely oh I know but for the listeners at home, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the timeliness aids in us really pulling back what we can use today, how it relates to today. Yeah, for me, it opens up possibility for more opportunities, especially with Midsummer. You know, it can be a play that's really just seen as a lighthearted comedy. And understanding this kind of stuff opens it up to be, you know, something maybe a little bit more biting, a little more, mm-hmm. uh, what does Theseus say, not suiting with a nuptial ceremony keen and critical mm-hmm. <laughs> so. exactly it's like yeah, yeah yeah reading that and you're like oh this line is specifically what this play is supposed to be this could be self-referential about a play that is being performed at a nuptial ceremony and is has some political satire in it yeah yeah so on that note shall we dive in i've got a little bit of like the history of the pastoral genre to dive into mm-hmm. and then we can talk about some juicy, juicy, hot piping tea from the <laughs> late 1500s. <laughs> I love it. This is, yeah, just to pique everyone's interest, when I was doing my research, I was having flashbacks to my plays for the court. Yes. And I'm like, wow, I think that I am the representative of the juicy gossip columns of the 1580s and 90s. Yeah, and I've got a yeah. few I've got a few little things to add to what you're bringing. Perfect. Yeah, lots of things packed into this play potentially. Yes. So first things first, what is pastoral comedy? Pastoral comedy comes from this literary tradition of pastoral poetry. And by the time we get to the Elizabethan era, pastorals become very popular. Yeah, they're just basically all the rage. And according to Louis Adrian Montrose's article of Gentlemen and Shepherds, The Politics of Elizabethan Pastoral Form, quote, 
The historical study of Elizabethan pastoralism cannot confine its inquiry to matters of literary taxonomy and thematics to what pastorals are or what they mean. It must also ask what pastorals do and by what operations they perform their cultural work, unquote. Hmm. Montrose also talks about previous scholars and their definitions of what is a pastoral. He quotes Lawrence Lerner, who said that, quote, the 16th century found no difficulty in knowing what pastoral was. It was a poem about shepherds, unquote. Step one is that you've got a character of a shepherd. Um, Montrose goes on to criticize Lerner for kind of oversimplifying the pastoral genre and says that we might do really well to reverse Lerner's perspective and consider pastoral as this want or a manifestation of the want or impulse for the city courtly people to leave behind their worldly um, responsibilities and dress up as shepherds and shepherdesses and where that came from. Montrose also quotes Kenneth Burke, who says that pastorals can also deal with a sort of class consciousness because they don't necessarily emphasize these cultural differences, but they can have a courtier and a shepherd in conversation together about what it means to be human or what the purpose of life is. So they can be actually very almost radical depictions of humanity, which is really cool. That is really cool. But Montrose also criticizes this idea of like, ooh, like we're having this classless conversation about whatever the pastoral is about by saying that, quote, the conception of a rigid dichotomy of economic class, the rich and the poor, misrepresents the multiple and overlapping status hierarchies of Elizabethan society, and the connotations of a pastoral trick are too crudely conspiratorial to describe the complex mediations through which cultural forms and social relations are reciprocally shaped. Nevertheless, despite its oversimplifications and anachronisms, Empson, another writer about the pastoral, mm-hmm. Empson's perspective does point us toward a more precise characterization of the interplay between Elizabethan pastorals and Elizabethan society. Mm. So again, like to just consider them as like in these stories, like class is wiped away and the rich you know, find joy in being poor. It's like that's oversimplifying what Elizabethan society was like. As we like to say on here, Elizabethan society was not a monolith. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking about like, you might get to this, but as you like it. Exactly. So, And as you like is widely considered to be like Shakespeare's pastoral. And what I'm really interested in is how Midsummer is also pastoral because we also have these people of a court, right? The lovers are they're noble like people. nobles. Yeah. Yeah. Going into the forest to seek their own contentment. And then they encounter fairies. And while the lowly people... The lower class people in this are not necessarily shepherds. They are tradespeople mm-hmm. who also go into the forest. We do have a moment of somebody of very high status and someone of very low status, Titania and Bottom, yeah. interacting, which is a key in pastorals as well. So, yeah, in As You Like It, we get Touchstone and Audrey, the shepherdess and the courtier, who happens to be the, one of the clowns. Yeah. And then you also have Rosalind and Celia as shepherds talking to Phoebe and the shepherd. Mm-hmm. Silvius, yeah. Yeah. Montrose also notes that nine out of ten people in Elizabethan England were ruled, were rural, were rural. <laughs> that word sucks. <laughs> the ruler. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking about. Nine out of ten people in Elizabethan England were rural dwellers, and sheep outnumbered people by possibly up to three to one. Oh, <laughs> like outside of the city, it's a very agrarian country. Just. 
a side note, I'm having images of settlers of Catan when someone gets way too many sheep. <laughs> that is Elizabethan England. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But it also, like, so much of the prosperity that England experiences under Elizabeth's reign comes from those sheep and that wool. So that's also why these narratives about shepherds are so in the forefront of people's minds. Interesting. Although it is really hard to locate the reality of Elizabethan rural life. These aren't real places. These aren't real shepherds. It is this imagined ideal of this life of the shepherd and like getting to wake up with the sun with the dawn and you only have one thing to worry about your sheep and then you go to sleep at night. It's it's a little cottage core. It's a little cottage core. Yes. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. a very way of putting it. And this idea has a lot of reasons behind it. Like shepherds were often paid in livestock that were allowed to graze on their employers' pastures. These like landed gentry were kind of like metaphorical shepherds while their landless employees were actual ones. Actually, yeah. Yes. And because everything is not a monolith, there are also some people who are like, I do not care about sheep farming. Pastoralism was also a focus of, quote, moral, economic, and ecological controversy that provoked pamphlets and petitions, riots, and rebellions throughout the 16th century. Oh, my gosh. It would remain controversial throughout the following century, unquote, because it leads to so much development that there's also resistance to creating more fields for sheep. Mm -hmm. There's more of a demand for wool and mutton. And so some Tudor landowners really are not for this like increased development. Even the Tudor era, they had NIMBYs, you know, that's what, Uh what I'm getting at. Like, yeah, basically, this is very nascent capitalism. Montrose points out that, like, the best-known expression of this anti-pastoral attitude is in part one of Utopia by Sir Thomas More, an advisor to King Henry VIII. So that's, like, how far back we're going. There's a character in Utopia uh, who gives a long, impassioned speech against agrarian capitalism that is starting to develop in England at this time. This character says, quote, Your sheep that used to be so meek and eat so little are becoming so greedy and wild that they devour men themselves, as I hear. They devastate and pillage villages, houses, and towns. For in whatever parts of the land that sheep yield the softest and most expensive wool, there the nobility and gentry, yes, and even some abbots, though otherwise holy men, are not content with the old rents which the land yielded to their predecessors. Living in idleness and luxury without doing any good to society no longer satisfies them. They have to do positive evil." For they leave no land free for the plow. They enclose every acre for pasture, as if enough of your land were not already wasted on woods and game preserves, these worthy men turn all human habitations and cultivated fields back to wilderness. Unquote. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just thinking that the, the sheep will inherit the earth is this fear that this guy has. Yeah, this this idea of like there are these greedy landowners who, instead of using it for a variety of food production and being farmers of the land themselves, they are completely destroying that and turning it into just like grass for these sheep to graze on so that, because sheep are making them so much money. Is there truth to this fear? Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is just like one of the very 
early stages of capitalism that start to come out. You no longer have these serfs. It's no longer a feudal society. Right. But you are employing people to work your land and you are, instead of growing food to support your community, you are... You are doing what's the most profitable. You're doing what's the most profitable and you're, se- and you're sending those sheep, the goods of the sheep, to the city and keeping the money for yourself. I see. So what people write about the reality of the Elizabethan countryside at this time is very different from the idyllic pastures um, and settings of pastoral comedies and poetry. Okay. I think Mantra sums this up really well as, quote, in the troubled countryside of earlier Tudor writings, gentlemen abuse their tenants. In the idyllic countryside of Elizabethan pastorals, gentlemen may escape temporarily from the troubles of the court, unquote. So it's also, by the time we get into like the later years of Elizabeth's reign, this like pastoral concept is no longer Upton St. Clair's The Jungle. I mean, it, it reminds me of an unrelated topic, but how madness in early modern theater mm-hmm. is not the realities of quote unquote right. madness or mental illness or mental health issues during the early modern era. It's something that's fake, I guess. Yes. I think it's also fair to call that out of like in the early Tudor period, we have writers when they are writing about pastoral settings, they are writing about the sort of like injustice that landowners are causing to the land and to the people who live on that land. By the late years of Elizabeth's reign, has society gotten to a point where they are so removed from that agrarian lifestyle that they no longer feel a sense of injustice? It's just the wheel has kept turning and now we can actually like imagine the like imagined shepherd that has this idyllic life. That's not what really exists anymore, but we can imagine it. Yeah. And by the time Shakespeare was writing in London, there were mass flocks of people from the country, from the mm-hmm. rural countryside to the city. So right. there also could right. be this disconnect because the writers are living in London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they don't actually see the injustices that the early Tudor uh, writers were writing about. Yeah, there's this disconnect. So one thing that pastorals allow for is, one, courtly gentlemen or courtly people disguising themselves as shepherds. According to Montrose, quote, when courtly gentlemen mask in lowly shepherds' weeds, they have become living allegories, personifications of the pastoral kind. By undermining the courtier's claim to physical superiority, it undermines the foundation of his claim to social superiority, unquote. So now we can start as audiences, as writers, peeling back the social strata, and we can start satirizing and criticizing them pastoral poems and plays became sort of political allegory that allowed for kind of like some covert political communication. Wonderful. It evolves from political in the sense of I'm writing, I, a early Tudor era writer, I'm writing political observation and commentary on the state of the countryside into it's still political, but it's political in a different way. Right. Through idealizing this non-existent life of a shepherd, we're able to, like we've talked about in Place for the Court, bring these figures that are otherwise untouchable otherwise untouchable, to the same level as a commoner, and then we can talk about them. Montrose sums it up as, quote, In pastoral forms, ambitions might be advanced in a kind consecrated to the rejection of ambition. 
Dangerous or impolitic opinions might be voiced obscurely or obliquely in a style expressed in a style manifestly simple and direct. Alienation from the court might be expressed in such a way as to reaffirm the writer's own virtue and gentility. Elizabethan practice confirms that the pastoral has an affinity for paradox. And in fact, it gets even stronger in Stuart Reigns. But we're focusing on a play that's like squarely in Elizabethan era. Yes. Yeah. Early Shakespeare. And for now, let's talk about Midsummer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the big question from my reading was, is there a political allegory in A Midsummer Night's Dream? And based on this research and this writing on pastorals, absolutely you can find political allegory. And my reading has a speculative political allegory. So this is all speculation, but I'll get to it. I'll, I'll go through this and you guys can let us know what you think. So similarly to the plays of the court episode from our Twelfth Night series, which if you haven't listened, go back and listen to that one, I'm going to spill some piping hot court politics tea that, if true, remember, like I said, this is all speculative. I have to emphasize that so that I don't get tried for treason. <laughs> Adds another layer to the characters of Midsummer. Now, scholars and authors have theorized whether or not Midsummer contains allegory. And if so, the question is, who is it for? Um, Some of the allegorical relations that scholars have discussed, for one, is Titania to Elizabeth as Bottom is to James VI? Or is it intended for a nobleman uh, who maybe paid the theater to include some allegory? Remember, in this time period, noble people could give a theater maker a little bit of money to slide something into that theater or into that play. And if Elizabeth is being allegorized, would she punish the theater for the criticism? There are a lot of theories out there, and I'm specifically going to share scholar and writer Maurice Hunt's speculation. Okay. So now, by making Titania the fairy queen, Shakespeare might be recalling in the minds of playgoers Queen Elizabeth. She was called the fairy queen. And this is also a shameless plug for our last episode on myths. If you haven't listened to the episode about Titania, Mm -hmm. go back and listen to that one. But um, Shakespeare also might be using the Fairy Queen because performances of Midsummer likely preceded the second installment of Edmund Spencer's poem, The Fairy Queen. Hunt argues that allegory might live inside Midsummer specifically because Shakespeare was writing the play at a time when this allegorical poem was wildly popular. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's largely believed that Fairy Queen is a source for Midsummer. Yeah, it's a source. And then on top of that, it might be right smack dab in the middle of all of this hype as early modern English people are waiting for Spencer to write more and publish more. Mm-hmm. Um, and elements of the Fairy Queen can facilitate the reading of a Shakespearean political allegory involving Queen Elizabeth, the Duke of Anjou, and King James VI. Uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And these speculations might be strengthened due to the social ties between Shakespeare and Henry Risley, the Earl of Southampton, between Southampton and Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, mm. and Essex and James VI. Mm-hmm. So there are all these social connections to consider. And the, the starting point for this is that uh, Shakespeare dedicated two poems in 1594 to 95 to Southampton. And it's rumored that Southampton might be the young man in the sonnets. Mm -hmm. Now, critics and editors generally agree that an allegory involving Elizabeth materializes in Midsummer 
during Oberon's account of how the pansy gained its magical property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have something to say about this too. Yeah. 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 So since the, since the 18th century, it has been agreed that the, quote, fair vestal throned by the West, unquote, alludes to Elizabeth, the virgin queen. The passage refers to the moon, and the moon is the symbol for her chastity. Mm-hmm. And Oberon's reference to a dolphin might refer to the 1575 allegorical pageant presented by the Earl of Leicester, who we talked about in place for the court. Uh, they may refer to this pageant presented by Leicester to Queen Elizabeth at the estate that she gave him, Kenilworth, which um, some scholars note is only 14 miles from Stratford. Shakespeare would have been 11 when this pageant went on. Mm-hmm. And Oberon's speech might allude to descriptions of Leicester's royal entertainment found in two texts. One is The Princely Pleasures at the Court of Kenilworth, published in 1576 by George Gascoigne, and a letter written by Robert Lanham. And the performance took place by a lake and featured a swimming mermaid, a god sitting on the back of a dolphin, and fireworks. The mermaid could be referenced to the part in Oberon's speech about quote, and heard a mermaid on a dolphin's back. Mm-hmm. The fireworks may be referenced to, and certain stars shot madly from their spheres. And Elizabeth being present may be referenced to, at a fair vestal, throned by the West. And when I mentioned that this pageant took place 14 miles away from Stratford, some scholars like to think that the inclusion of the dolphin hints at Shakespeare's firsthand knowledge of this experience but it also could have just been that he read these two reporting back the events mm-hmm. of. But people like to speculate that maybe he was there with his dad. So that is a reference to a political, cultural event that Shakespeare might be taking that connects Elizabeth specifically to this play. Yeah. I also have heard this Kenilworth and Earl of Leicester idea, but my reading, which was Edith Rickert's political propaganda and satire in A Midsummer Night's Dream. In this, she posits that the pageantry that Oberon describes might actually fit better a very similar event in 1591 in Elvetham given by Edward Seymour, Earl of Hartford. I read about this one as well. Oh, please. Okay. Go on. Yes. Yeah. So we actually have like a drawing of Elvetham. And there is a mermaid that stands on the dolphin's back, which uh, Rickert says is a Metaphor for the ship approaching the queen, who is literally on the west side of this area. So we're talking about this water and this ship and this mermaid. Mm -hmm. I read that laborers dug a crescent-shaped moon. Yes. This crescent moon kind of looks like a smile. The queen in this drawing is seated to the west. And the big difference, Rickert notes, is that at Kenilworth, the topography and circumstances are very different. The queen stood on a bridge at the east end of the lake, and the water's pageants approached her from the west. Mm. But there was not an actual mermaid singing on a dolphin's back. But at Elvetham, there Mm -hmm. definitely was. And this was like, it was like the main event. And there were extraordinary fireworks. Mm -hmm. Hertford had spent like a fortune (laughs) preparing for the queen. So Rickert suggests that Hertford was trying to outdo Kenilworth. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really possible. And Kenilworth was 1575. So like, what is that? Just under 20 years before Elvetham. So in addition to all of that pageantry, it also might be 
closer in the public consciousness as a reference. Yes. So um, if you've listened to Plays for the Court, we've definitely talked about Lester and I believe we also brought up Lester in Twelfth Night. Yeah. As a courtier who we see a lot of work written about um, when it comes Mm -hmm. to Elizabeth and a lot of allegory and satire. So like, what did Hertford do to deserve? (laughs) Why would Hertford deserve to be put in this? So he is the son of Elizabeth's step-uncle, the Lord Protector Somerset, and nephew of Queen Jane Seymour, the successor of Anne Boleyn, and he might be described best as her first cousin by marriage. Then, and this where it gets spicy, mm-hmm. in 1560, he secretly marries her chief maid of honor, Lady Catherine Grey, who was her first cousin once removed. So if you know anything about Queen Elizabeth, you might know that she expressly forbade her handmaidens from marrying Unless she did. Oof. Mm-hmm. So the virgin queen who's unmarried. Yes. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So um, shortly before the birth of a son, Lady Catherine confessed the secret marriage to Queen Elizabeth. And the queen was apparently furious because she claimed the right to control the marriages of her relatives. And because two acts of parliament and the will of Henry VIII, any legitimate child of Lady Catherine Grey stood next in the succession to the throne. So this baby was a threat to Elizabeth's line of succession. So Hertford and Lady Catherine are imprisoned, and then an ecclesiastical commission appointed in 1562 declares the marriage null and void and the child illegitimate. Elizabeth! Yeah! Elizabeth! Well, this is not the first time she has done stuff like this. So... Lady Catherine dies in 1568. In 1571, Hertford is finally released. And sometime later, he marries someone else and is again welcome at court. And in 1580, he was given his patrimony and became enormously rich. So he's given his his lands and titles. He, quote, from that year on, secretly he entered in the court of arches year after year, a protest against the finding of that ecclesiastical commission, unquote. After all of this has happened, it is pretty clear that Hertford has very few reasons to love the queen and throw a party in her honor just for the heck of throwing a party in her honor. Uh huh. But he has a lot more reason than a lot of other people to flatter her and make her believe that he loves her. Mm. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am team. It's probably alluding to Elvitham. Elvitham. Yeah. Yeah. But some of these characters within Midsummer come from other parts of the court. So shall we (gasps) talk about some of these other characters? Yes, please. Okay. So Oberon's speech sounds allegorical. And if Elizabeth could be at the center of this allegory, there's a juicier rumor that could be alluded to that involves my boy Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. (gasps) Okay. Okay, so after continually pursuing Elizabeth for marriage, remember Lester was one of the big suitors. Mm -hmm. Lester also went behind Elizabeth's back romantically and began an affair and later secretly married Essex's mother, Lettuce Nolis, the Countess of Essex, who was widowed. Ooh. And at the time of Kenilworth, the Countess lived on the west side of England. Lettuce might have been the little western flower, considered milk white, until 
Her reputation and moral character was ruined by adultery claims. <gasps> and then she became stained, quote, purple with love's wound, unquote. Ooh, I've never heard that one. Neither had I. So maybe the pageant that's being referred to is Elvitham. Maybe Shakespeare's also kind of conflating the two. Yeah, I think that's highly possible that mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. purposely meaning to reference both. Yeah. Both. Mm -hmm. Lester, again, again, Lester is in the middle of some political allegory in the Shakespeare play. Now, if we continue to contemplate Kenilworth as being involved, we can continue to read the allegorical nature of Titania, Oberon, and Bottom. Shall we? Mm-hmm. So if lettuce is the little western flower that Oberon references, this flower is the cause of the confusion and the chaos in Midsummer. Mm -hmm. The love and idleness flower is the cause of a fairy queen, Titania, foolishly degrading herself in an erotic relationship with a bestial man, Bottom. Now besides Lester, the queen really only had one other affair with a suitor, and that was Francis, the French Duke of Anjou. Now, one reference, one possible hint in Midsummer is the ass-headed bottom addresses the fairies by Monsieur 11 times when they are pampering him. Neither the fairies nor bottom are implied to be French, but can you guess who is French and who is addressed as Monsieur both publicly and in letters written by Elizabeth? I don't know. Anjou. Anjou, yeah. Okay, that was going to be my guess. I was like, Anjou? It is Anjou. Okay. And <laughs> and this pairing, this romantic relationship was unpopular amongst the English people because this projected marriage would have been between Protestant Elizabeth and French Catholic Prince Anjou. Uh-huh. And this disapproval caused the address Monsieur to become a term of mockery in noble circles like Lester's circle. Oh. And Bottom says Monsieur a lot. 11 times, at least with the pampering of the, um, with the fairies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In addition to calling him Monsieur, Elizabeth loved giving nicknames to her servants. And Anjou's master of the wardrobe was nicknamed by Elizabeth her ape or monkey. Huh. In Oberon's, in his imagination about what kind of beast Titania might fall in love with, what are the first two he mentions? Meddling monkey and an unbusy ape. Yeah. When I say this was an unpopular match, I mean it was an unpopular match. John Stubbs, a pamphleteer and political commentator, wrote in a defamatory pamphlet that the likelihood that a dissolute life gave Anjou syphilis was reason enough to discourage a marriage with Elizabeth. Oh? Syphilis, the French pox, gets associated with Bottom when he tells Peter Quince that he can play Pyramus. When Bottom is listing colors of the beards. Mm -hmm. Your French crown. Uh-huh. Quince res responds, some of your French crowns have no hair at all, and then you will play barefaced. And that is a pun on a head bald from syphilis. Wow. Yeah. If Shakespeare wanted to allude to Anjou, he might be thinking, why does Bottom get turned into an ass? Why not that meddling monkey and or busy ape? And the reason could be because uh, Shakespeare is saving his own skin. Edmund Spencer, in The Fairy Queen, alluded to one of Elizabeth's inner circle, Lord Burghley, as a fox in one of his poems. And it turned out Burghley somehow found out that he was the fox in this poem. 
and that had social repercussions for Spencer in spite of the success of his poem. So Shakespeare might have feared going too close to an illusion yeah. that will bite him in the butt. So instead of ape, he transformed bottom into an ass mm-hmm. and was able to then also incorporate the Apuleius golden ass story. And they may be conflated for a reason, because if you conflate the things, you can't say it's definitely one or the other. Exactly. At a time when you could be um, tried with treason for seditious statements, it's a safer thing for you as, a, as an artist or a writer. To, you know, to save your skin. To mix details of multiple events into or multiple people into one and then people can recognize what they want to in it. Um, mm-hmm. But you have that that equivocation, should we say. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, you briefly talked about Spencer's Fairy Queen. Spencer, for the Elizabethan audience, including the Queen, after seeing the Fairy Queen, they would have very closely tied the idea of the Fairy King, Oberon, with Henry VIII. Oh, and the fairy queen, Titania, with Elizabeth, right? Yes. Rickert asks, so then what's the fight over? And um, suggests that the changeling child and the quarrel over the changeling child, the changeling boy might be the future of England. And it might actually reflect the refusal of Elizabeth to yield to Henry VIII's will yeah. by preventing uh, Hertford's heir from being legitimate and like calling that ecclesiastical council. Oh, so then. Interesting. I also read about the will, but I did not hear about this. So then, if, you know, we're talking about Hertford and Oberon is Henry VIII and Titania is Elizabeth and she's recognizing herself in this, who is bottom, right? That's the big question. Right. Who is? So Rickert points out that uh, in order to be an allegory, Bottom has to meet two conditions. One, quote, rank not derogatory to the queen's dignity. And two, such thorough disfavor that the idea of her infatuation would be amusing, unquote. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that Anjou definitely check, check. Yep, yep, yep. She suggests, what about King James? <gasps> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I read about King James as well, but I'm curious what your research was. Okay. So how can Bottom be read as satire in King James? There's a really odd coincidence with how the mechanicals portray the lion. The idea of bringing in a lion among ladies seems to be connected to a real thing that happened at the christening of King James's son, Prince Henry, at Stirling in August of 1594. Really? According to the original plan for the pageant, a tame lion, which... Lions are also symbolic of the Scottish coat of arms, was going to draw in a ship of state, but at last minute, due to consideration of possible fear among the spectators, that plan was abandoned. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the conversation that Bottom has with the other mechanicals about not scaring the ladies, the ladies of, the, of, the court. of the court with the lion yeah. and like, let's like give the lion a speech. And the lion comes out and is like, don't be afraid. <laughs> can be read as making fun of the situation where like King James's son's christening had a lion in it for a second and then they backed out of that plan. James was like, Nix, Nix yeah. this. And that joke is repeated three times and it's commonly taken as being referring to that. Also, James had, was notoriously timid. It is believed that he would have been part of devising this pageant and so like it would have been him who said, no, let's not have a lion. Mm-hmm. And so... By the end of 1-2, Rickert notes, Bottom is essentially set up to be a caricature of James in terms of his physical features, his beardlessness, his voice, his speech. 
his ugliness, his bourgeois, all these things. Mm. Then we get to him playing Pyramus to Elizabeth. Uh huh. Because here's an interesting fun fact. James wrote a poem that is assumed to have been addressed to Anne of Denmark, but internal evidence is strongly against that. And the writer's relations to the woman he is addressing are not those of Leander to Hero, but of Pyramus to Thisbe. Mm. One stanza reads, But liker is my fortune rare, since seas divide us not at all, to Pyramus and Thisbe fair, divided only by a wall, which in it had a bore, wherethrough they spake, which of a chance before dame fortune break. And very like did us befall, as them of whom I show before. We distant are by such a wall, and often spake by such a bore, which envy called a nail, there through so straight, as made our moyen fail to speak of late. So, if James had been speaking to his wife, uh, Hero and Leander would have been much better because they're separated by a sea. But Pyramus and Thisbe are separated by a wall. Uh-huh. That could be like the great Roman wall built by Hadrian, which still divides Scotland from England. Would that make him a Pyramus to Elizabeth's Thisbe? Mm. He had previously hoped to marry Elizabeth as late as August 1586. Year after year, she just like grudgingly paid him and he accepted a pension. Yeah, she gave him an allowance. Yeah. Yeah. As like the price of his friendship. And then last but not least, um, a lot of these things Shakespeare could have learned from his dramatic patron, Lord Hunston, and his son, George Carey, uh, who became Shakespeare's patron in 1596 and were often in Scotland and knew James better than a lot of Englishmen at the time. So they could have mm. made fun of James around Shakespeare and given him some of this material. Inspiration. Yep. There's a lot of continual hints at James's personal idiosyncrasies and behaviors in The Person of Bottom the Weaver. There's satire of his pretensions to marry Elizabeth and his claim to the English throne in Bottom Playing Pyramus and dreaming in his mm-hmm. ass's head that the fairy queen had crowned him. Ridicule of James as a critic in Bottom's criticisms and in the style of the interlude. And satire on the Scottish lion. A long list. Long list. So many. Yeah. That's interesting because James also showed up as an illusion for me, but in a different way. All right. Tell me. Yes. I also read about how Oberon can be an illusion to Henry VIII as Titania is to Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And my source brought in the changeling child. Ooh. Okay. And Shakespeare wasn't the only one to use these illusions to discuss Elizabeth, Henry VIII, and specifically the Tudor lineage. The Fairy Queen did this. So did Decker's The Whore of Babylon from 1607. Mm -hmm. And specifically in Midsummer, Titania and Oberon are married. So this marries Elizabeth to the Tudor line. Oh, okay. You mentioned Elizabeth not having a successor to the throne. This was a huge anxiety for the English people. They were very worried about the heir. Right. Titania is also childless. And so allegorically, Oberon Henry VIII uses the transformation of bottom with Anjou or whoever as a form of punishment to Titania Elizabeth for not providing the changing child an heir to the Tudor lineage. Yeah. So Hunt is saying that the implication is that this play is a succession play, a drama partly about Baron Elizabeth and her successor. So while your reading placed James as the bottom for all those potential reasons, 
this speculation. And of course, this is all like allegory. So Shakespeare could be conflating and using. Right, right, right. right. So I, so for listeners at home, this is not a counter to, this is a other potential yes. possibility. A yes, yes and. and maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so if this speculative allegory bears any truth, this is a risky allegory for Shakespeare to put on this drama about Elizabeth and her successor. So of course, allegory is essential. John Stubbs, who I mentioned earlier, the pamphleteer, who openly wrote in opposition of Elizabeth and Anjou's relationship, was tried for seditious writing, and he had his hand cut off. (gasps) Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I know. Again, you talked about, like, this threat of, like, why we would conflate multiple things and why we're, like, yes-anding all these potentials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And this brings us to the changing child. Hunt quotes last week's scholar that I spoke of James L. Calderwood. And Calderwood basically says that the changeling child is not his own person, but rather a signifier in a system of communication, an allegorical signifier to a select few in the audience who were involved in the English succession. Mm. The changeling child and his mother, the Votress, are not Athenian. Instead, they are linked to an Indian king, a royal, he uses the word alien, but someone who's not English. Mm-hmm. And the votress is an imperial votress, a sovereign votress or worshiper. Mm-hmm. So the potential claimant of the throne, who was mentioned throughout the 1590s, was James I. Yeah. Well, James VI of Scotland, James I of England. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Who legally is an alien and the son of a royal alien, Mary Queen of Scots. Mm-hmm. So... This could be a satire or this could be an allusion to Titania, the Elizabeth, and the imperial votress, Mary Queen of Scots, right. and the changeling child that she is taking care of, James VI slash first. Oh. hmm Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. In the 1590s, there was a pool of potential heirs that were being thrown around, and James was one of them. Right. And he was a favorite amongst Protestants, the Earl of Leicester. Philip Sidney, who wrote the pastoral comedy Pembroke's Arcadia, the Earl of Essex, and the Earl of Southampton. Mm -hmm. So we are now going back to the top of my research where we're trying to figure out how all of this politic fits in with Midsummer. Right. And so Hunt argues that Shakespeare's Henry VIII being Oberon, or Oberon being Henry VIII, can claim James VI as his surrogate son and heir, mm. something he could not do in his last will and testament, which you talked about. Right. There are lines that are cut out. Yeah, yeah. And the Scottish line was cut out as well. And in a Robert Greene play, The Scottish History of James IV, which was uh, written around 1589 or 92, there is an Oberon character, a king of the fairies, who appears alongside other fairies, and they're a kind of chorus. And this play fictionalized James IV, but it also alluded to contemporary politics. Mm -hmm. There was a Queen of Scots, and it's not Mary Queen of Scots, but the mention of a Queen of Scots could have evoked the memory of another Queen of Scots, Mary, who was executed four years earlier. Right. James IV is not unlike James VI. And this same play also called for a unification of England and Scotland, something that James was interested in. So if Shakespeare was influenced by Green's Oberon, his allegory implies that King Henry VIII, if he could have, would have made James VI a surrogate son and a member of his train. 
and the person with which Elizabeth or Titania must embrace as his successor. Mm. Mm -hmm. So now that we have this speculative political allegorical read of Midsummer with Elizabeth, James, and the royal court, I want to connect this to the sociopolitical world of Elizabeth's court. Okay. Yeah. This part of it is like, here is where we see the ties between the men of the court and maybe why they would have asked Shakespeare to allude to, to use allegory in Midsummer in this way. Mm-hmm. The men that I mentioned earlier, Shakespeare, Henry Risley, the Earl of Southampton, Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, are all interconnected. Southampton was a patron of Shakespeare's, and people also connect them as romantic partners, or they might have had sexual relations. Essex and Southampton were friends, and Essex was a sort of protege to Southampton. And by 1595, both Essex, who once was a favorite, and Southampton, who temporarily was a favorite, had fallen out with Elizabeth. Also, around 1595 to 96, this is when scholars and historians date Midsummer, and it's also, like I said before, around the time that another installment of The Fairy Queen was to be published. And Southampton was said to be a big fan of The Fairy Queen. Ooh, Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, he loved The Fairy Queen. And remember, this is all speculative. We're not being tried for treason. (laughs) Southampton may have asked Shakespeare to incorporate the image of The Fairy Queen, Elizabeth, into his new play, but do so in a demeaning way with a veiled allegory to the humiliating affair and Anjou and the forbidden subject of Elizabeth's succession, James. Mm. One of the reasons Essex was in hot water with Elizabeth was because a book was written by a Jesuit priest in 1595 that called for a Catholic successor to Elizabeth and named Essex as the only person with the power to sway Elizabeth's succession. And that book had also been dedicated to Essex. So Elizabeth was not happy about this. Yeah. It was a book that was written with a pen name, a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. And so she doesn't know who wrote it, but she does know that Essex is being written about in this way. And so she's upset. Not happy. Not happy. And so he's falling out of favor. But years earlier, in 1589, Essex began a correspondence with James and promised his service to the Scottish king. And so what Hunt is arguing is that perhaps... With all of these illusions that we're noticing between Elizabeth, the fairy queen, Oberon, Henry VIII, the Tudor lineage, Anjou, or any other suitor that may have been not fit for Elizabeth, and then this conversation about succession and King James, this allegory might have been purposefully placed into Midsummer with the express intent to comment on Elizabeth's heir. And it could have been done by members of her court who were not in favor with Elizabeth at this time. And so they had a specific reason to demean her and insult her in this way. Right. Especially because if the changeling child is an allusion to James, both of these men were supporters of James at this time when the play was being written. Right. And the first performance of Midsummer we talked about was likely performed for the marriage of the Earl of Derby and the daughter of the Earl of Oxford. Mm Mm-hmm. Hunt notes that there are tons of references to Spencer's Fairy Queen in this play. And Lord Burghley, the court favorite who was upset with Spencer because the fox was alluding to him. Right. Like that was still in there 
when he would have been attending a royal wedding. Mm -hmm. So Hunt is simply offering that, like, perhaps there really is a lot of clever, elusive ridicule of the queen and her suitor and the controversy of her succession for this audience who would have understood it or might have been incorporated for another audience at a later performance after the wedding through the use of the nobleman. Mm. Okay. Yeah. But it's so deeply hidden. Yeah. So if you're not in the know, then you're not in the know. Yeah. And that's maybe why like all of this topical allegory might not show up for us in a reading because because we're just yeah, not we don't. we're not we don't, we know. don't know. And so thereby this elevates the courtly artistry of the play. Yeah. I also wonder I'm like I think both connections to King James could be active at the same time mm-hmm. like he, the entire problem with bottom and the way that he's presented if he is james right mm-hmm. is that she is doing what she wants to do instead of what oberon wants her to do and she's making james look like more of an ass than he is mm-hmm. if this is like you know propaganda from a pro james camp right and if she only gives the child to oberon slash england slash england all things shall be peace. Yeah. I think you're right. I think both aspects of James could be in there. Yeah. He is both the bottom that if you are reading it from an anti-James perspective, who wants James to marry the queen? Who wants James to be on the throne? Yeah. There were so many potential heirs that had popular campaigns. Yeah. Yeah. Like the message could be don't marry him. Yeah. But like make him your heir. Yeah. I have just like one more tiny little thing. Mm-hmm. Because pastorals continue to be used and Midsummer is kind of a big turning point in terms of like the use of fairy lore. We see it in the Fairy Queen. And in Marjorie Swan's The Politics of Fairy Lore in Early Modern English Literature, she notes something that we did not cover in our last episode, which is Shakespeare's contribution to fairy lore. Marjorie Swan says that Midsummer is kind of a groundbreaking depiction of fairies. Shakespeare innovates fairy lore by saying that fairies are smaller than humans. Prior to Shakespeare, fairies and elves are small, but they are not teeny tiny. They're not Tinkerbell small. They're not Tinkerbell. Yeah. They're hobbits or they're human size. We have in Midsummer a like kind of half realized we have these fairies who can creep into acorn cups and who can, you know, go about unseen and are this teeny tiny, you know, mustard seed. And in both Midsummer and Romeo and Juliet, he makes fairies physically diminutive and puts their behavior in socioeconomic context. So Titania's fairies are very feminized, associated with like housework and mm-hmm. things that were seen as very female. And then Oberon is, you know, he's got a knights. And uh, Swan notes that like the names of the fairies and Shakespeare's descriptions of their activities would have suggested that the audience is seeing them magnified. Mm. And then Oberon and Titania are like regular human sized mm-hmm. because Oberon and Titania are able to have sexual relations with humans so Mm -hmm. therefore they must be human-sized yeah then romeo and juliet we get the queen mab speech where the fairy queen goes from being in a household economy into all this like conspicuous consumption um which is something that the elite were turning towards she has this coach and she has these wings and she Mm -hmm. has these all of these things so as i was talking about earlier that distance that's growing between the agrarian society and the pre-capitalist society of london Shakespeare takes fairies and not only are they representing people, but through them starting to also criticize sociopolitical movements. 
Um, and this continues through Stuart Kings, through James, through Charles. Uh, it continues to remain a very popular way to literally make small things that social elites are doing or arguments that the writer is writing against. Mm. Making the fairy small is another satirical technique to literally reduce Strength. the elite, bring them down much like putting them into shepherd's clothing was. Mm. I love that. Yeah. That's a neat tool. Thank you, Shakespeare. <laughs> Thanks, Shakespeare. And thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod, or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's ShakespeareAny and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Twelfth Night, Act 3, Scene 4, spoken by Malvolio. Well, Jove, not I, is the doer of this, and he is to be thanked.